What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 8 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. This episode we're talking to Tom Brunzel. Tom began his career in education as a Teach for America Corps member at NYC PS number 28 in the Bronx. Tom co-founded KIPP Infinity Charter School as Dean of Students and Literacy Teacher. He was team leader in the University of Pennsylvania KIPP Riverdale Country School three-year partnership to develop a character education and the character report card with Dr. Martin Seligman and Dr. Angela Duckworth. He now serves as Senior Advisor Teaching and Learning for Berry Street Childhood Institute, working with school leaders, teachers and their regions in the area of school culture and curriculum development. In terms of Tom's education, he received his Bachelor Degree from Yale University, then a Teaching Master's Degree and a School Leadership Master's Degree. Tom presents internationally on topics of transforming school cultures, high expectations for differentiated instruction, trauma-informed practice, well-being the application of positive psychology, and effective school leadership. He's also a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne's Graduate School of Education, Centre for Positive Psychology and Youth Research Centre, studying trauma-informed pedagogy, positive psychology, and their impacts on workplace meaning. In line with his current PhD, the paper that Tom nominated for this episode of the ERRR titled Trauma-Informed Positive Education, Using Positive Psychology to Strengthen Vulnerable Students. This paper explores the role of a positive education paradigm in mainstream and specialist classrooms for students who have experienced complex trauma resulting from either abuse, neglect, violence, or being witness to violence. The discussion that we had with Tom on trauma-informed positive education was fascinating, as was our discussion of charter schools in the US, mindfulness in the classroom, as well as our exploration of when to let students get away with bad behaviour and when to be more strict. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 8 of the ERRR with Tom Brunzel. Tom Brunzel, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you. Um, cool. The question we usually start off with uh, here is, if you're at a party and someone asks you, hey, hey, Tom, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Uh, I'm an educator. <laughs> I'm an educator and... Uh Gosh. Okay. I love big questions. I'll give you the biggest answer and then I'll give you the mundane everyday answer. Uh, my big answer is uh, I feel like my mission is to increase the consciousness of those around us. And education is a pretty awesome way to do that. On the daily, I do a lot of speaking and a lot of school ed consultation and advisory. We have a team and I'm sure I'll talk about that in, over the course of the hour. We go into schools, we help schools, specifically thinking about trauma-informed practice, well-being-informed practice, and positive psychology, all twisted and turned and integrated into visible academic outcomes. I spend a lot of time giving principals advice and also thinking about how to shift an entire culture of staff toward a positive conscious direction. Cool. Sounds like a busy schedule. Thanks. 
I'm wondering if you could give us a bit of a background of sure. of how you came to be where you are at the moment. I'll start at the very beginning for a moment, uh, because often people want to know why my name sounds the way it is and why I look the way I do. So I was born in Vietnam, in Vietnam, in Saigon, uh, and I was at the end of the Vietnam War. I was a baby in a box flown by the American military and adopted in Los Angeles. So my accent comes from Southern California. And uh, I lived my whole life thinking that I was going to be a fashion designer. So I, I, went to, I went to art school and I went to a lot of other uh, creative sort of design thinking. Uh, well, what we know now as design thinking, we didn't call it that then. But gosh, it really pays off now. That's a, that will be a theme, I think, through my career. I went to Yale University at the time because they had the best art program for undergrads uh, in the States. And uh, I moved to New York in 1997, and my first job to my North American friend uh, was uh, for a uh, sort of, I guess you could call it a, a mall shop J. Crew. It was, I was uh, in the men's, uh, menswear department, uh, where we would spend a lot of time obsessing over the color of a button. And I mean, you laugh, but that was, that's the way it works. So for about f- a few years, I'd say about three, four years, that yeah, was a long time ago. You know, I'd be in a room like this and 15 of us would be literally arguing over cornflower blue and the millimeter of the collar point and what was last year's sales. And I realized I did not want to be my boss anymore. <laughs> so I took some time off and uh, I have Oprah to thank for my career. Wow. Because I thought, you know what? I want to either be a social working person or a clinical psych-like person or an educator. And I wasn't sure, but I was sick and watched Oprah Winfrey one day and she was doing a whole feature on Teach for America. And then at the end of the program, she said, oh, by the way, the deadline is, I think, tomorrow. And literally, I went online and the deadline was tomorrow. So uh, I joined TFA and uh, Teach for America, Teach for America, but proudly associated with Teach for Australia and uh, was a teacher in the Bronx uh, for the first years of my education life. So I was sent up to teach grade fours and then eventually fives across the street from Yankee Stadium. And it was very intense. I made every mistake in the book. I'm sure we'll talk about that. And I do feel my career now is like karmic justice for all the mistakes that I made with those babies. And then uh, after three years, uh, opportunity absolutely found me. I worked really, really hard. And suddenly I was the lead teacher of maths for the school. And I was giving teachers with years more experience advice. And suddenly I had to realize okay, so this is not just about pedagogy. This is about human beings. And how do you, and I guess I know I'm looking at a number of promising early career educators at various stages in your life. I think one of my themes for you, if you are, see this as a lifelong pursuit and it feels like you do, you got to put yourself in places to give really difficult feedback to very struggling adults. It was, and I often say, if you, if you can articulate what you want to do, to somebody else who doesn't want to hear it, then you're pretty damn good at it. So uh, I got, you know, I started taking leadership roles in schools, specifically because a mentor of mine in grad school said, you need to get good at this thing, which is about feedback and classroom observation, what I now name is sort of shifting practice of a school. Through that period, I finished my second master's degree in school leadership, and then uh, got, uh, was asked to start a school. 
So I was asked to start a charter school called the Kip Infinity Charter School. Can I can I ask? Am I going to? No, no, that's enough? great. But, okay, I'm, but you say I was asked to start a school. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Who asked you? Tell what happened. You can tell what I'm doing right now is I do all of this in like two minutes of my keynotes. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you you actually want you care. So you want to know. <laughs> um, I was asked to start a school by a fantastic school leader named Dave Levin and Joe Negrone, two leaders, who were thinking a lot about how can we create a network of charter schools in New York City and beyond to meet the needs of struggling kiddos. I resisted for a year or so. Um, I did not, I, I, I was and am totally committed to public education. So, you know, as one of the themes perhaps of this evening is what are charter schools and what does it mean to have a school on the corner and a government school across the street? Well, those are complex issues and I can argue both sides of this coin. I can also say not all charter schools are created equal. Uh, so we can talk about that later, but, uh, they kept knocking. And they said, you know what, we want, to, we want you to be what became the dean of students, the head of engagement and well-being. And I was very arrogant and said, well, I, I don't know what I want to do, but I want a lot of freedom. <laughs> and they said, well, you have to earn your way, but you could make, you, could, you, can, you can see this new thing, this school as an opportunity. And so a small band of us, including Mike Witter, who's a director over at TFA Australia, we started this school and we had no idea really what we were doing, but we had a lot of hope and a lot of ideas and a lot of high expectations. So we created this place where the children, the teenagers were with us from, wait for it, 7 a.m. in the morning to 5 p.m. at night. And it was an intense, long day. And I can say we learned a lot about how to improve education outcomes and there's no shortcut to that. I mean, we did it through time on task. We did it through absolutely re-deconstructing the school day and remaking it as two hours of literacy, one entire hour of writing workshop, another hour of nonfiction, an entire hour of computation, and then an entire hour of problem solving. And so we were hitting them real hard uh, with both exploratory concepts and didactic concepts and Socratic concepts. There, I do want to add in, as a nod to my Steiner roots, I'm, I, I'm a pretty progressive guy when I'm in a room full of not progressive people. And then when I'm in a room of like hardcore stats people, I become the Steiner person. And I like the idea of morphing your identity because you have to do what you need to do to be effective, I think, for the kids. But um, I wanted to understand in as many ways as thinking, and I was very much drawn to Rudolf Steiner. So um, I became Steiner trained. I started my Steiner training in Brooklyn, and then I finished it in Warrenwood here in Victoria. Yeah, I'd lo- I love talking about Steiner stuff. Uh, for this podcast, I would say, because give me a nod if you're familiar, or are you a, anyone here a Steiner person? So I would say what Rudolf Steiner's contribution to our education thinking is meeting the child uh, meeting the child at a developmental consciousness that each child moves through stages of learning stages of conscious growth and conscious self-reflection and the curriculum and school culture of steiner schools is uh, based on the architecture of that thinking now i'm clearly not a steiner school person but uh, that that has certainly left a mark on the way i think about things
So uh, I was at KIPP for, I think, six years. And uh, eventually, I think quite pertinent to today, uh, back in 2002-ish, maybe, three-ish, Dave Levin, the founder of KIPP, pulled me aside and said, hey, I was at this uh, thing, and there's this guy named Marty Seligman, and would you ever would you, do you care? <laughs> and I was doing my master's thesis at that moment. And I was like, you mean this guy? And I pulled out uh, The Optimistic Child, which was changing my life at the time, a uh, bestseller that he wrote. So uh, I had a crazy, amazing, wonderful opportunity to work with the University of Pennsylvania and Martin Seligman and Angela Duckworth. And I was there, I was the KIPP NYC leader of research and pot, what, well, what became positive education for a network of five New York City schools. So with Seligman and Duckworth for, quite, uh, for, the, for that time, we did some pretty cool randomized control trials with my kids. I'm happy to talk about that around self-regulation, and delayed gratification, and um, thought a lot about a whole school approach to resilience. And then after a bit of time and uh, the good people of Berry Street Victoria came, one day on a study tour. And I was so, I mean, I like, like a lot of Americans, very naive about the rest of the world. And uh, I had no idea what Victoria was. And these people came and said, would you ever, ever, ever think about visiting Victoria? And I said, without even thinking about it, no way. Like we don't, I, we don't leave the country. <laughs> like my vaca vacation for me was maybe going to Mexico or going to the Caribbean. Uh, but I went home and I told my partner and he said, you call those people back. We are going to Australia. <laughs> if they're giving you a month uh, of, of a study tour, which was really a beautiful vacation, uh, I said, okay, sure. So I uh, came to Victoria and fell in love with Victoria. Uh, and now I know a lot about Victoria education and beyond. So that's the potted history. Wow. I'm curious, you, you did touch on how we could maybe delve into the charter school thing a little bit more. I, I, would, be, I would be very curious to know. It's not really, like the idea, I'm sure for people around the table, the idea of starting a school is not one that's very easy in Australia. No. Um, it's a very different environment to the US. Yeah. So, I'd like, I'd, I'd be really interested in your opinions on how that possibility to start it um, influences teachers. Mm. Um, and I'm also curious... Uh, in terms of your thoughts, like what you said then was, we really had no idea what we were doing when you were starting this school. I'd be curious as to your thoughts um, on, on how, how, that, how that goes. Yeah, totally. So, and if it's okay is, is really what I'm trying to get to. Of course. Charter schools, very controversial, do not exist here in Australia. And oh, by the way, I want credit for this. I'm an Australian citizen now. So charter schools existed in, and I would say, I mean, I certainly know New York the best. Uh, so in New York State, I would say, yes, there are some very broken down systems and systemic responses education in New York. So I think when the system itself is so broken that solutions need to come from many, many different places. So charter schools become one of those places. Now, all charter schools in New York and beyond are not created equal. In fact, every single charter school has a very individual deal with their state. So it's very, I mean, it's impossible and naive to talk about charter schools as a thing. But actually, really, when you are thinking about this idea, you have to look school to school to school. 
for instance, we KIPP, we made deals with the New York City, uh, New York State government that said, New York State, you spend fifteen thousand per kid. We will spend less. We will spend, and I believe we spent about fourteen thousand. But you know, somebody will check me on that. But we made a commitment to spend less, and one of our concerns was we were very attractive to funders. But we and we could have easily just taken in money and money and money, but that would not have shown a sustainable model of education. And so, part of the mission of KIPP nationally was we will spend less and we will produce more learning. I'll just interrupt for a second. Why were you attractive to funders? Why did people want to fund schools? Oh, okay. So KIPP had an incredible track record、uh, by the time I got there with their original school in the Bronx, and had a number of schools, sort of pilot schools across the country. One example I like giving, though, is in New York State we had fourteen thousand per kid. In California, there it's, it was it was four thousand per kid. That was the difference in equity across the United States for education. So at the time、uh, that I was designing the school、uh, with our team in California, they were doing away with assistant principals, and you had forty-five kids in every classroom,、um, and so it it was not attractive. And we realized, okay, so we were always comparing ourselves to states that were not as fortunate as we were. But、uh, I think you know we obviously I was being quite、uh, brusque with that naivete. We knew what we did not want to do. And、uh, I came of age as a teacher in New York State, where every single year after first grade was a NAPLAN test. Every single year. So my poor kids、uh, of New York st- st- students and a lot of state students have to take a standardized test every year, which means that they will have 80% of their curriculum test prep. So they weren't reading anything real. They were reading test prep passages and and and, and figuring out tricks to ace the questions. Which clearly is not about the love of reading. So the group of us decided that what we wanted to do is create a love for learning, and we did that through reading workshop and building stamina and a love for the text. We had to do some test prep because we didn't want to disadvantage our kids, but we really concentrated on the tasks and tried to stay away from what the state was jamming down so many every teacher's. So.、Uh, You know that that swing comes and goes, and I will not speak for this situation in New York now. But I do know it, it's very test prep heavy.、Um, cool. So that 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 other question I had: Do you think that there being charter schools?、Yep. Oh, and I really appreciate your highlighting of the context, the educational context, kind of necessitating in your view. Oh yeah, totally. So I just wanted to say: So clearly in Australia, schools are not broken. Clearly, in fact, I feel a great energy around school reform,、um, well-being in schools. I mean, like it's obviously not perfect, and we're all going to work very hard in our careers to make it better and better. But again, when you think about sort of what I've become a specialist in around well-being in schools and school engagement, and we'll use an example of mindfulness, and I really want to talk about your mindfulness question in the research that.、Uh, That there's an appetite in Australia, specifically in Victoria, and I would say Victoria and South Australia, to integrate well-being as a whole school approach. That's one of the reasons I'm here. And between a broken system and a bad system, like why would you say that in Victoria we don't have a broken system in comparison? Like what made、oh, what、question. made New York broken? Because if I look at our system, I don't think it's great. Yeah. Um. Ooh, okay, so one of the I would say the emphasis on test prep 
and the emphasis on the test. So here in Australia, NAPLAN is very important, but it actually does not hold the same weight nor the same pressure as a standardized test does in, in America. Students think it does, and I know that's, it's very important for a school's profile and, of course, the authentic learning of a school to understand how you measure against each other. But the pressure is, is far, far greater, and you do not see the kind of authentic learning tasks that we see there. There is a second issue that I'm not comfortable talking about um, recorded. So I, if, how do we do this? Because I'm happy to talk about it, but I don't want to be on record talking about this. Hey, it's Daniel. Uh, I had two questions just on the whole talking about charter schools. So you say that we can't have a charter school in Australia, and maybe this is my misunderstanding of the situation. What's the difference between a charter school and a private school? Like, I don't know what it would be like, but if I said today I want everyone in this table and we're going to start a school, yeah, and like, as in, is it, and because so, private schools exist, so uh, I mean, a, a, in a, a private or independent school, uh, well, gosh, the um, the definition of that is very, very different in our various countries. So in the United States of America, an independent school does not get any government funding at all. So an independent school is truly, truly independent. Catholic schools do not get any funding at all either. So it's a very different system with very different equity issues, et cetera. Uh, And I will not go into that on this podcast either. But I will say, so what you have then are government schools who are funded by the government. And then there's this new weird middle space where certain governments from certain states, kind of the Wild West of education, are saying, our go- we can't fix our government schools. We are, we are mired by conditions like we just talked about, et cetera. We, oh yes, I haven't talked about this in a long time. The deal that you make with the government is you will say, we will have our kids take the NAPLAN test, but in return, you don't touch anything that we do. You don't touch our hours, our policy, our curriculum, or anything. And we will take those tests to prove that we're doing what we say we're doing. Um, And so the deals are struck. And you basically, at the time that I was doing it, you had two years to prove yourself. And if your scores were shit, you were closed which is a good thing. I mean, it's, it's havoc for a neighborhood, but, you know, a group of yahoos, you know, lots of yahoos opened up schools and realized that their visions were not going to work. We, in our first three years, became the number one school in New York for student achievement gains. So what we were doing was beating two, 3,000 schools um, and based on the learning that was happening. So we were very, very confident about that. Now, the, what we were public about was that our concerns was not around student achievement, but staff sustainability. And so my staff worked their butts off. They worked from, they were literally with children in front of them from seven to five, which meant they got there at six and left at six or seven. We asked them to work on Saturdays. We asked them to work through summer holidays because it was all about the students. And so one of the concerns I have as I am now an older person and thinking about staff sustainability is how do we support the student gains, the time on task, all of that stuff, but clearly support the adults in the room. And, uh, you know, we were young when we did this school. No, but no one on staff was older than 35 and no one had children at the time. So we were just selling ourselves to this, to this idea, which I think the original founders, we are so proud of it. And we look back and think, 
that can only happen in that kind of an environment where you vote to do the kinds of things we did together. And it was very collaborative. But again, I'm not convinced that's, that was not a sustainable model. And I am very proud to say, as Kip obviously still exists, they work very hard on changing those initial early days of staff expectation. It doesn't operate in the same manner now? It, 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 it does with more flexibility for staff. The hours are the same. I think that kind of leads into my second question and kind of answer. My second question is, yeah. because you were going to the government and saying, you're usually spending 15K per student, we're going to spend 14K, where did you cut costs? Because like, it's, it's quote unquote easy to chuck money at a problem, but if you're trying to do something in a problem with less money. Oh, totally. And I'm about to make up my answer because it's been so long. But for instance, school budgets in New York State are totally tied to vendors etc. So you have to buy, you had to buy your desks from a certain place and then you had to do this and this. And so actually we had all the money we needed. And in fact, most schools do. It's just, we had the freedom to spend it any way we want. So you can imagine the incredible advantage of not being tied to preconditioned deals made by people a decade before you. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Sorry. The business person in me. Yeah, totally. Um, and, you know, and just to, in Victoria, the, you know, the Victorian government is not giving away schools, nor do I think they should right now. You know, like I, I my, my concern, I will say this right at the top, is I, get, I came from a place where it was really about small school movement, high schools. So no high school in New York City at the time I was there was more than 300 people, 300 kids. So it was very shocking when I landed here seven years ago to see what I call high school super barns. You know, it's like, oh, it's all about collaborative learning and we're all going to learn in groups and we're going to have 50 people in this room and we'll have two teachers and it will all be okay. Uh, and I've just seen too many teachers who have no business doing group work yet because the classroom management has to get tighter and tighter. Cool. Anyway, that was a weird hi. <laughs> All right. At this point, we might jump into the article okay, you that, you, that you nominated. So, we do a brain break first? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Hello, everybody. It's a brain break. Can everybody pair up? Two, 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 two. Oh, yes, two. Okay, good. All right. Thanks for the energizing brain break, Tom. So, we might jump to the article today. So, yes. when I asked you... Um, if every educator had an hour to read some of your work, what would you want them to read? You, you nominated an article on trauma-informed positive education. Could you just give us a bit of a, a summary of what yes. trauma-informed positive education is? It's a very dense article. I hope you skimmed it. Uh, so, I moved to Victoria to belong to Barry Street. Barry Street is Victoria's largest child and family welfare agency. We are a thousand people across Victoria. And we are the government's uh, primary contractor of uh, welfare services for foster care, residential care, clinical services, family violence. So I often say we work in the shadows of the human condition, and we definitely have seen some very, very dark things with some of our children. We embarked on a journey and a couple of years ago to become trauma-informed. And so I landed in this place that was trauma-informed, and I did not quite understand what that was because that term had not hit the states in the way that it has here. And so this idea of trauma-informed practice and trauma-informed practice for educators becomes a cornerstone of our working model. And here I was from New York, having just worked with Sullivan and Duckworth so intensely around 
you know, pause ed interventions. So positive, you know, the, the integration of positive psychology in the classroom based on evidence bases, et cetera. So, you know, ideas around growth mindset and emotional intelligence and self-determination theory and mindfulness, et cetera. And um, what I found when I would go to many schools is that well-meaning teachers were trying to do these pause psych things, but they were totally disasters. And I'd call them mindfulness disasters. So it's like, I'm trying to do mindfulness with my year eights, but these like these gorgeous kiddos are doing it and you guys are on your phone and you've walked out of the room and you're throwing things. And then the teacher comes in and says, oh, the mindfulness doesn't work. And we realize, oh gosh, I totally understand. We're not going to argue something that you haven't actually quite understood how to implement well or how to do this well. And no one's teaching you how to do this well. So we took it back to this idea of could we, uh, I started thinking, could we look at all of these positive education things through a filter of vulnerability, through a filter of trauma-informed practice? What does a teacher need to know to set up his or her classroom well for what I will call above-the-neck interventions? You know, to use a growth mindset to understand what your character strengths are, to have emotional intelligence, you have to be a very well-regulated person. And are people here familiar with Dan Siegel's hand-brain model, this little guy? No. Oh, this is fun. Okay, so this is from Dan Siegel, a researcher, a neuroscientist. So everybody do this with your hand. I'm putting my hand up like this. Now, put your thumb inside like this and wrap your fingers over like this. So look at this little fist here. This is a brain. And we teach this to preppies, so everybody learns this. So this is your brain. Now open it up again. I will say this here is your brainstem. It mediates the most ancient parts of your brain, your blood pressure, your body temperature, your heart rate. For the, for the listeners, that's kind of like from the second knuckle on your thumb down towards your wrist. Thank you all. And this is your deencephalon, your midbrain that controls your motor skills and arousal and appetite and things like that. Top of your thumb. Top of your thumb. Sitting inside your hand, we'll call this the limbic system, and your stress response, your amygdala and your hypothalamus and your locus ceruleus is embedded deep in here, and then your prefrontal cortex is here. So clearly, you have to be able to think to learn. You have to be in your prefrontal cortex to learn, to connect, to use positive education well, to practice resilient self-talk, all the things we love. But when a kiddo is freaking out, They flip their lid. They lose their prefrontal cortex. And what you have then is the reaction, the emotional brain haywire. So we work with children who this is a way of being, that they are constantly on high alert. They are constantly hypervigilant. They are scanning the environment for threat. And sadly, the reason they're doing that is in their early childhood, perhaps, uh, the people that were meant to protect them were the people who abused and neglected them. So this becomes a survival mechanism. And uh, for instance, we measure our kids' heart rates in our own school as part of science and maths. Biofeedback is a powerful mental health intervention, et cetera. Your heart rates, I'll just take a naive guess and say is probably 60 to 80 beats per minute. So that's you know, a nice second hand. But uh, with our Barry Street teenagers, their heart rate can be 110 beats per minute resting. That's them looking cool. So if I give you a dirty look in the middle of class, I'm going to shoot to 140 140 beats per minute and I will have no control over what I'm about to do. And it will take me a very long time to drain those stress chemicals to be back in my prefrontal cortex. So, you know, and I, you know, love saying, you know, learning is, learning is moving into a zone of tolerance for stress. 
Like, you know what it feels like when you try to learn something new. You know, when I read new things, I read the paragraph and then I read it again and then I read it again and tell myself I'm an idiot and then I read it again and I fall asleep and then I read it again and I finally get it. But I'm used to that heart rate. Like, I'm used to that escalation and I kind of love it. Like, that's what, how I know I'm learning stuff. But clearly, our young people, they don't like that feeling because that feeling leads them to dysregulation very quickly. So what I just described is sort of the bedrock understanding of trauma-informed practice. And um, so I just kept thinking, I didn't want to turn my back on pause ed, but I was constantly faced with teachers who were saying, this doesn't work. And so what we started doing was, uh, well, no, I will say this to my early educator career friends. I started my PhD at the University of Melbourne right here, and uh, my supervisors are Dr. Helen Stokes and Dr. Lee Waters uh, from the Center of Positive Psychology and the Youth Research Center. And so what we started doing as PhD journeys goes, is anyone doing their PhD here? So, um, oh, we people here who will. Uh, as, as, yeah, the, first, uh, the first thing that Lee and Helen said to me is, if you're researching trauma-informed practice, then you need to look up and research every single trauma-informed practice model in the world. You need to compare and contrast, do the data, and uh, prove that what you're about to do is new and doesn't exist in the literature. So that is the paper that was uh, shared with you. That was that paper. So it's probably my second chapter or something like that. But uh, what we ended up doing is realizing that all the trauma-informed practice models were speaking about two core domains, healing the stress response or self-regulation for, for students and in tightening up or um, strengthening relational capacity. Now, those two themes, self-regulation and relationship, become like the themes of our work because if the trauma-informed practice literature is saying that Teachers are not going to have meaningful learning if kids are dysregulated and they can't form strong relationships, right? So self-regulation relationship. Then we looked at the positive psychology literature and uh, of the 24 character strengths, uh, we now know a lot about those strengths and it could be that there are sort of umbrella strengths and two of those strengths for students are the strengths of love or attachment and the strengths of self-regulation. So from two sides of this coin, well-being and trauma-informed practice, we're saying you need to be self-regulated and you need to form relationships. And then I was asked to do a keynote around 21st century learning and so I did some shoring up to introduce the concepts I wanted to talk about. Well. Turns out to be an employee in the 21st century for jobs that we don't know exist yet, you have to be pretty self-regulated in a new knowledge economy and you have to work collaboratively and creatively. So these two concepts form the first domains of what we now call trauma-informed practice for POSED or trauma-informed positive education. So it's a developmental approach uh, saying, of course, as a teacher, you have to teach stuff and you have to teach stuff to get into kids' heads. But as a priority area of classroom intervention, I do want teachers to lay awake at night and think, how do I create cultures and have strategies for de-escalation, for mind-body connection, to have students connected to their bodies? Because the kind of kids we teach at Berry Street, they're only 4% in their bodies, right? Like 96% of them is worried about the drama and the gossip and what they'll find at home and what they'll find on the street and what's going to happen at the shops. 
So we absolutely have to have these strategies of de-escalation to self-regulate and then form strong relationships. And then we took the time to start sort of uh, reframing, as you were, as you might, uh, the pause-ed interventions in that there was a paper. There was a third part. So you talked there about repairing regulatory abilities and repairing disruptive detachment. Then there's the third part, which I thought you were really adding, which Call is the out. increasing okay. yeah, psychological yeah, resources. So Barbara Fredrickson, who's the world's leader in positive emotion research uh, and a real titan in, this, in the world of positive psychology, she labels the well-being, uh, well-being interventions as um, increasing psychological resources. And so that is an umbrella term from the research that we did use because we certainly acknowledge Barbara Fredrickson's uh, work ahead of us. So in the model of type, trauma-informed positive education, that is where we put a growth mindset, character strengths, resilient self-talk. Because you have to be in your prefrontal cortex to even stop, take a breath, and connect to your growth mindset or connect to your strengths. So that's the point of that. Now, I will say this is uh, where the type model joins to the Berry Street education model. So uh, type for me is an, it's an academic model in the peer-reviewed literature. And it was a real gift to be given that advice from my supervisors to say, you know, it doesn't exist if it's not published in the peer review scientific literature. So we created a model that could be essentially free. The conceptual uh, empirical evidence could be all in one place for teachers to use and adapt. And hopefully there will be many different versions of type. Researchers and other practitioners will think this is a good idea and they'll develop their own work around it. But commercially, uh, for Berry Street, I was asked to start a model called the Berry Street Education Model. So obviously type sits as the foundation, but the Berry Street Education Model, which by the way, I just have to give a shout out that there are people at this table who are working in schools that we get to work with. So it's pretty awesome that you came tonight. We think a lot about strategies. So in the article is the research, but we really thought teachers need strategies. They do not want to go to a professional learning thing and come away with a bunch of theory. And I also, as a leader, I will tell you, there's one thing that I hate the sound of, and that is the sound of teachers complaining. And so teacher, and, and, I, and, I, and I mean, I supervise a lot of teachers for a living. So I, 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 I wanted to ensure that at Berry Street, we gave you all the materials, all the research, all the strategies. So when you were trained by us, you had everything you needed. So that's how we designed this program. So we spent a lot of time with incredible co-authors and scientists to think, what are the strategies that we can glue to each domain of our work? So you can see here, if I can have one of your toys, I brought these little squeegee cubes that we made as um, nice giveaways. But uh, the Berry Street education model is based on the five, five domains that you will now recognize as type domains. So the first domain is the body. And that is where we've put all of our strategies for self-regulation and de-escalation. And then we have relationship. And here we've put the strategies around what we will call the micro moments of classroom management. Because obviously we are not teaching people how to get to know people. That's obvious. Uh, but I will say that it's the micro moments where you can make a relationship or break one. Uh, you can de-escalate a kid or argue with a kid. And I know a lot of high school teachers are listening to this, and high school teachers don't have 30 students. They have 200 students. And all you have are micro moments with those kids. So we want every one of those moments to count. 
So we've put therapeutic concepts, and I'll say it's sort of a list of them for friends that care about this, like attachment and unconditional positive regard um, and other co-regulatory strategies that we know teachers can do here. And then as the model progresses, we move into stamina, and that is where we build stamina for learning using a growth mindset, resilient self-talk, emotional intelligence. And from a co-author, our co-author, Maddie Witter, how to create stamina for both independence and group learning. And then we move into engagement, which is a, we really take our lead from our clinicians and psychologists at Berry Street. And here we talk about the willingness of students. And dare I say, for every, for every goal that we set, for instance, there are counter intentions. There are reasons why our kids set goals and then don't achieve those goals. So we've thought a lot about how to communicate that notion of goal setting, counter intention, what's pulling you back and getting teachers a lot smarter on that, uh, on that cycle of goal setting. And finally, character and character strengths. Cool. I think it's, a, it's quite a good opportunity we've got here, um, there being someone in the room who is, whose school is working with uh, Berry Street. And as I'm an advocate of student voice, and essentially Daniel here is a student of Berry Street's work, I thought it might be great to get some comments. I'd be curious to know, uh, one, how long, you don't have to say the name of your school, but how long has your school been working with Berry Street? What kind of engagement have you been having in the program and, and what, what have you come to understand so far? Um, how's it going for you? And I, maybe this is an opportunity to have one of those com- important conversations that you were talking about earlier on today, Tom. Thanks. Um, so, the school I've been working with, we've just started working with the Berry Street Education Model this year. So, we're going to have four days, curriculum days this year, where we're working with the Berry, the, having presentations. We, well, Tom gave the first presentation that was on body. We've had the second presentation so far, and that was on relationships. And we're going to have two more presentations later this year. So, it's been quite good because as Tom's mentioned, he's like trying to keep it as practical as possible. So, the resources that come with are quite good and quite very less like you just need to use this exact thing and copy and paste it and 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 this is what you will be getting the students to fill out and talking through with and those tools have been quite good. I'm interested in how as a school we're actually going to implement that because there's a lot of the things that we can do as, as a teacher I can do. There's some strategies I can specifically use and the relationship part was definitely something of that because it's like how do I what can I do in those micro moments to actually ensure that I have my students engaged and they're on a task and I'm building a good rapport with them but some of the broader ideas around having like a I forget what it's called Tom the resilience plan or you went through in the body section it was like a response plan oh the uh yes we so we have something from the trauma-informed literature called a safety plan, which is a, an individualized plan that students articulate when they feel dysregulating, but we encourage schools to rename it. So some schools love the word safety because it's one of their values, but we also love resilience plan or focus plan. Mm. Yeah, so that, that's a great example of something I think would be super useful, but was require a whole school kind of approach and saying every single student is going to have this. So coordinating when are we going to be developing them with the students? How are we going to be using it? Are we actually going to be using it on the day-to-day basis when we're in the recess, when we're in class? So things like that are, I think, where the challenge can be to really get the most gains out of a trauma-informed, um, uh, trauma-informed kind of model of education. Um, so interested to see how we potentially progress that next year. And I think that's a plan to kind of do the program this year, work out what we actually want to push as a school, which are the, what are the key specific points that we want to push, and then actually implement that. And I think that's obviously Tom's got a lot more experience in how do you actually make that stick in a school. 
Daniel. Uh, this go, Ollie, this goes to your, I think your, what's your theory of change question. Yep. And I'm very happy to talk about that. So we take our, you know, when you're teaching well-being, we take our lead from the literature that says well-being concepts have to be lived by the adults, right? So you can't just say you're going to have a growth mindset and tell people to do it. And if you have a fixed mindset, then obviously that is inauthentic. And from working with vulnerable students, they may not yet have the cognitive skills to express how they're doing or self-reflect in ways that we want to have them do. They will get there. But uh, they certainly have a nonverbal avatar-like ability to sense who's authentic in front of them and who's not. So we definitely love the idea that says when you're learning a model like ours, you need to live it. You need to feel it inside of you. You need to practice it as an adult. And there are some people, like my friends at Geelong, my very good friends at Geelong Grammar, who will say that uh, you would, you know, to give school staff a year to try this stuff out, to think about it. So based on that theorizing, you're in your year right now, Daniel. Like, it can, you know, we're, we're pummeling you with strategies and ideas. But what I would hope in this year is that you and your colleagues are thinking and trying and applying and feeling like it's resting in your heart well and that you're able to practice what you want to. Now, that's what I would stand on a stage and tell you to do. But behind the scenes, we're doing a lot more. So I'm thinking and I'm speaking now to school leaders and potential school leaders that I see school implementation or theories of change as a squeeze from top and bottom. So sort of bottom up, top down. That Bottom up, I want every single teacher on the ground to take this in, live this, try things, feel freedom, have choices. But top down is very important because I will say after working with over 400 schools in all states and territories, the two vital behaviors for school-wide implementation are as follows. One is leadership's ability to observe classrooms and give meaningful feedback. Two, a whole school approach to language. Language is everything. So we, hopefully, Daniel, are dropping down a new set of words. So instead of calm down, we like introducing the word centered. We want our students to be centered, and we want them to know when they're off their center and in their center. And high performers, high performers know what they need to do to get centered. So you can see that language moving. Uh, I can talk about language forever. I will say uh, school, school observation, right? So this is a controversial thing that I am happy to say on the record. I find that schools, certainly in Victoria, are spending a lot of time trying to ensure that there is such a thing called peer observation and observation triads and all that beautiful stuff. Good on you. You do that. But it's been an... Inc I would say you'd have to be a pretty well-running school to have those observation cycles living and breathing the way we really want them to in a regular way. And uh, I find that when those are too choicey around schools, like people are busy and they just don't do them. Uh, so again, I'm, this is not going to turn into that talk, but I will say I get really nervous when I look at a print in their office with the door closed and I say, when was the last time you saw your year 10 math classroom? And they kind of give me a look and they're like, I haven't seen it. So then we realize then what we try to do at BSEM is Bear Street Education Model is we are trying to empower leaders to both give the feedback they need to give, 
see classrooms in a whole school approach and be able to give consistent feedback across. I mean, at KIPP, and this is one of the reasons why we had incredible results and we're very, very tired every day, is as leaders, we made it our business to observe every single teacher in the school every single week. Now, those sometimes would be 10 minutes, sometimes they'd be longer, but you can imagine when you are being seen by someone in leadership so frequently, it's just a shorthand. It's easy. Those are not formal classroom observations. That's just like, hey, Daniel, I saw your classroom today. You did three great things and here's some fix-it stuff. Let's go. And so that shorthand of feedback is so important. And I'll just ask you, I mean, you know, if you were to grade what grade your own schools based on what I said, give me a five if you're like, yep, our school does what you just said. And give me a one if you know you're far away from that goal of having leaders give supportive, interesting, good fix-it feedback. I think it's interesting what you've just said, because I think coming from the TFA model, I think it's a very different approach for observation. So when um, our you know teaching and leadership advisors would observe us, it was a very open dialogue about the teacher being very aware of your weaknesses and wanting to discuss the weaknesses and saying, oh, I really think that, you know, my weakness is relationship building and I was just so terrible and I did, you know, I really attacked that kid and I just went on a power trip and blah, blah, blah. Whereas I feel like in schools, it's all very like non-judgmental, like what are my wonderings? Like you did really good and like, and it's not helpful and it seems almost like I felt super comfortable having anyone observe me before, but now I'm moving towards like, oh, seems like a scary thing and it seems like it's punitive if they come in and they say, you know, like you haven't done this. Like, I don't know, the culture seems different. I don't know how everyone else feels about it, but it feels like, you know, my leadership, I do have a leadership or like a teaching coach and they wouldn't really say like, oh, this was terrible. Like you really stuffed up, like your learning intentions were so unclear and like, why did you do this? It doesn't feel like that culture is happening, which, and it, yeah, it seems more punitive and scary than... Hi, Meg is my name. And um, it's interesting that you're saying that, Kea, is it? Yeah. Um, Because I feel as if it's a bit of what you're used to. So I've taught in Canada, trained, educated in Canada, trained as a newly qualified teacher in England in some really, you know, interesting places, schools and special measures and things like that. And I do feel personally as if, I don't know, and I feel... Like I'm in a room with a bunch of Australians and I'm about to say something that's a bit sort of wrong, but um, kind of all in the way that you approach it. So the English approach kind of is, you know, the English school system, like, you know, it's just no judgment, but it's just honest, solid feedback. And that just from point zero, day one, that's just what you come to expect. So I'd have principals, assistant principals in my room, you know, twice, three times a week. And I sort of just don't bat an eyelid now if my principal comes into my classroom. So I, I do feel as if it's sort of an educational culture thing within Australia. And I noticed the difference too. People kind of dance around like, you know, um, with their sort of feedback sheets. And it's, it's very, very different. And that's not solving your problem. That's just a genuine comment. So, Thanks, Michaela. Yeah. Um, so in the last school that I taught, I actually uh, was in a position of coaching other teachers. And it was a very new experience for me, but it was a large school that had a quite an embedded coaching model in place and one of the early things that I learned was when you're working with other teachers to establish goals with them about what they want to see in their classroom and what their vision for their classroom is. I found that this was a really important way to ground then subsequent feedback conversations with them Mm -hmm. and Tom I'm sure you can say more about this 
in a way that would focus on are we getting towards that vision of the classroom rather than making some sort of judgment call on whether you're a good or a bad teacher. The beautiful leaders that I get to work with are very insecure around this thing. They want to do it, but they have not yet, they don't yet feel they have the knowledge. And so when you don't have the knowledge and you're trying to do a thing, it can come out all sorts of ways that you don't really mean. And I think this is part of the relational capacity that we're trying to teach. So one thing I think we're very helpful to schools uh, is that leadership uses the Barry Street education model as a bit of the reason why a culture of feedback arises. Like a school invests in us. We are not an easy investment in that we are, we definitely demand to, for our strengths-based classroom approach to have significant hours of school professional learning time. So that's an investment of time and money, but you know, and money is money, money, money's money, but the real investment from schools is time, is to give us that time and to work with you. So um, what we say to leaders is, explain to your teachers that we've invested this as a whole school approach. Therefore, we need to see this approach start to live. So to a long way around the question is, we are with schools like Mill Park and Daniel, oh, Laverton and Daniel, we are using this year to expose you and teach you and do all the work as a whole school. And we will be working with leadership behind the scenes to start setting up structures like the ones we're talking about. And we want the leaders uh, at all levels of leadership to be able to say, oh, we've agreed on cultures of de-escalation for students, especially when students are making a mess of things. So the only way to understand that and share the practice is for somebody or a group of people to hold that uh, observation across the school. Sorry, Shelley, just to comment on that, I think the irony in the whole situation is that we're expected and we want to give our students open and honest feedback every single day. And then as teachers, we don't expect that from our leadership or from our peers in a peer observation model. Like we are constantly telling kids the cold half truth about, you know, the mistakes that they're making or how they can make it better or those things. And yet, as, as the person in charge of that classroom, we don't welcome or accept that feedback. Yeah, I, I'm not personally like that. Everyone can come into my classroom, so, I mean, tell me what I'm doing wrong, all the TFA, rest of it. But. Right? I love TFA and other movements around social justice and education because I often, you know, TFA is not a teacher placement service, right? Like, and I think in politician land, it becomes this football around what's TFA and is TFA just trying to staff people? And what, is, what about traditional, you know, all this silly uh, dialogue? My understanding of TFA and TFAs around the world is that we're creating a movement of education leaders and systemic leaders who have had the experiences that many of you have had. So that, you know, what I would say specifically is cultures of feedback, cultures of improvement, cultures of openness. And that's what I've loved about my experience in meeting some of you tonight, because you have, it's, it's a mindset. And with that mindset, you can do anything. So that's, and that's what we're doing. I think um, that's something that I've noticed is that there's a problem with feedback is a clear model of what it, we should look like as teachers and how we should be teaching. So we don't necessarily, for example, at my school have, we have an instructional model but how your warm-up looks like or how your reflection looks like can be very varied. And my understanding, you know, from my training, a warm-up should activate prior knowledge and do a whole bunch of other things. For some people, it's just should be engaging and fun. So 
when I think when there is an observation and there isn't a very clear model, I think when I had observations from TFA, there was a very clear model of teaching what is best practice and what does best practice look like. But now when I have observations, I think, and I hear a lot from teachers, which is like every teacher is different and every teacher has to teach to their personality. And I think, I think some of the issues with feedback is there isn't a clear enough model of being like, this is what best practice looks like. And you have a, you know, you approach it differently because you might be more extroverted or introverted or quiet or whatever, but you need to have a rubric that clearly identifies, you know, like I've had teachers say, oh, we could have developmental rubrics, but we can also globally mark. So just read something and then kind of figure out where the kids are and speak to them. And my response is, well, that's just bad practice. Like that's not, you know, an alternative to marking. That's not good practice. So I think I think what's good about the Berry Street model, obviously, is then you have a very clear template for schools to say like this is what it's meant to look like. And so if I see something different in your classroom, I can then say what you're doing doesn't match what you're meant to be doing. I think that's the problem with a lot of schools is we don't have what is that meant to look like and we don't have enough training as teachers. Like we obviously do our degree, but then after that, once you're in schools, there really is very little upskilling or training or professional development like that is truly rigorous for teachers. And the model evolves. So the model of well-being evolves, the models of engagement evolve, research evolves, it evolves and it needs to evolve. One of the rubrics I like giving schools, I try to scar them a little bit and say, listen, we're not trying to turn you all into the same teacher robot, but here's the thing. If you're the vulnerable kiddo and you have way different expectations through five different teachers, guess what? You have the right to have an explosion, right? If teacher A has an awesome rubric and demands your best, teacher B totally doesn't care, teacher C lets you be on an iPad the whole time, then by the time you get to teacher D and teacher D tries to have high expectations at at around 2.30, you're just going to be like, F you, F this, I'm done. And that is when I was dean of students, I had to apologize to a lot of kids on, on bad days because I had to say, guess what? I don't love your baby attack right now, but it's kind of justified. I could see why your frustration, and I'm going to apologize to you on behalf of our teachers because they weren't doing their job the way they needed to for you. So there's this idea around consistency around, say, lesson structure or the way we deliver aims or whatever the thing is. What I would say from Barry Street's uh, angle frame is we want to see relational practice and well-being practice in schools be consistent with the same language and the same approaching of relationship. Because if one teacher has incredible strategies to build micro moments of relationship, and then the next one just sort of yells at you and then the next one is sarcastic, then you're going to lose your mind and you are going to be the kid in school who's not going to be able to handle your own stress response, firing, and all these other, uh, all these other different instigators. It's my favorite topic. Too. Something you mentioned you wanted to touch on earlier, Tom, was mindfulness interventions, and I guess this is kind of stepping back and and really questioning the basis of of, of yeah. some of these approaches. What I sent to you as a question was that a recent paper suggests that. The findings show that mindfulness-based interventions in schools had a small positive effect on cognitive outcomes and socioeconomic out- socio-emotional outcomes, uh, but did not improve behaviour or academic achievement. Um, what's, your, what's your comment to that? I love the debates around new research. So it's very fashionable right now to pull apart Carol Dweck's work and say, 
well, is growth mindset telling poor people to try harder? Well, no, it's, you know, those of us who love growth mindset and understand the nuances of that know that it is way more complex. Teaching is way more complex than saying, the research says to do this, we're going to do this. Which, by the way, if you think you're following the research, you know, the adaptation of that is natural. You know, our subjectivity is happening as, as without us knowing, uh, social theorists would say. So uh, mindfulness, same thing. I mean, uh, you know, this meta study by Brandy and Maynard had 35 randomized control studies in it. That's not a lot of studies. I mean, it feels like a lot, but the, uh, the publication date, I think, was 2016 on this, but I'm not, we can check. It was a recent yeah. one for sure. So guess what? Mindfulness as a thing we study to see if it works, uh, it's a new thing. So I want to revisit these meta studies year after year after year for the next 25 years. So that's one thing, right? It would be very naive of us to think that one meta-analysis has said this and the evidence base is shaky. Fine, it should be. That's the, that's the scientific process. But I will take questions like this because people like getting a lot of uh, text time with these kinds of, oh, mindfulness doesn't work. So, you know, we need to find a different, different thing. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of educators who have worked with Brody. So I'll, tell, I'll say we like Brody. Brody is that kid. Brody is the kid who has experienced incredible adversity, who does not want to do the mindfulness. And we work with a lot of Brodies at Berry Street who are ice addicted, who are doing very, very, very terrible things when they're not at school. And they should perhaps have medication, for instance, I mean, you know, clinically. They have been diagnosed with hyperactivity. They have been diagnosed with a mental health concern. But systemically, they're not getting those medication supports. They're not going to their clinician. They're not, your, their families or carers aren't able to keep up with those treatment plans. So let's say, take all of that as the premise. Mindfulness is the one thing that they have that's free, available to them, and available to human history since our evolution. Our ability to take in oxygen, be in the present moment. And what I love about mindfulness is that we're trying for Brody and all of our students to build a new feeling because they're used to the feeling of adrenaline and cortisol and drama. Like we like saying to teachers, like your teenagers are addicted to drama. They check their phones 300 times between the hours of midnight and 7 a.m. And every time you look at your phone, your cortisol goes up and you're like, yes, the drama. But that is not helping you learn, and it's not helping you sleep, and it's not helping you have well-being. So what we are trying to do through Berry Street and all sorts of other, well, mindfulness is our topic at this second, is I'm trying to build a new feeling for kids that says there is a feeling, there's a you in there that's not adrenaline up. There's a you in there that can appreciate the present moment and understand these micro moments of Zen. And what we found is the most difficult students hate mindfulness, right? At the beginning, they don't like the feeling. They, it's scary because what would it be like if you stopped your self-talk for a moment and just took a breath? But what we encourage schools at our own school, we worked for three years to get to two minutes of mindfulness every morning. Um, and those kids did everything but be mindful for two years. But now they ask for it. Now they sign up to be the one to lead it. Now they're doing it. So I would say that the proof for us is qualitative and quantitative in the data we collect every day. I don't, you know, don't want to give up on this because somebody has released a paper that says that the meta now the published the published studies right now are 
are not giving us a uh, statistically important uh, result yet. I think that's interesting what you're saying. And I think that um, linking a technique like mindfulness to academic improvement is such a difficult thing to do. Like how can you link one intervention when academic improvement comes from a myriad of different things like um, a mindfulness plus academic rigor plus, you know, better study routines plus building of skills. Like you need a whole range of things to improve academics um, and behavior, not just mindfulness. And I, and I think to me that study doesn't say anything because I don't think the goal of mindfulness is to automatically improve academic outcomes. Like that link I don't think is – I think it's a, something that is a tool that can assist other interventions to work for. Um, this is not a direct question, but I guess I also want to hear your opinion on – so following on from what Kyle was saying, by the way, this is Juan, um, when it comes to mindfulness and perhaps a, quite a few other things that people have been talking about when it comes to positive education, they may take many, many years to come to fruition. And if this takes, I mean, during year seven, if it's taken seven years, it's never going to be in the data. So what, what is your opinion on, on the idea whether mindfulness could be something that's, that is beneficial and maybe to your outcomes, um, not only it may be outside of academia or it may be in academia, but at university as opposed to in high school. When it comes to the long-term goal, are we, are we becoming, I don't know if it's not a becoming thing, have we always been a business thing? Are we always being the same thing that happens with um, the goal financial, uh, what was it called, GFC? That happened because everyone was on the short-term results. We just want to make money tomorrow. We just want to make money for the next month. Uh, what's happening with long-term? What's your opinion? So I'm going to answer that two ways. One, measuring well-being in schools is actually really, really, really hard. And it's hard for a lot of reasons. One, um, and I've had PhD friends somewhat heartbroken because their data was not what they needed it to be. The reason why is in if you take time one data in term one, and then you try to take time two data in term three, it turns out everyone's well-being tanks in term three. <laughs> So actually, to try to measure the arc of a school year to a randomized control trial is really hard to do. And my friends at the Center of Positive Psychology think of very sophisticated methodologies to try to understand this. So for instance, one of my friends, she works on uh, well-being intervention evaluation. And one of the things they have to do is they'll have school A do the thing, mindfulness. School B does not do the thing. And they have to show that schools A, schools A well-being tanked less than school B. So you can see why that is not so rewarding feeling, right? That said, I will really answer the question by, um, by saying I was very lucky to hear this from Seligman himself. So we were at a meeting and I had the big opportunity to say, like, how do you measure well-being in schools? And he says, well, you can and people are going to try. But you never know when this young person's going to need this strategy. You're never going to be able to know if something they learned when they were 17 is something that they're going to use, this mindful moment in front of the mirror when she's 30. So is, does that mean if we can't capture that in researchable terms that we don't do it? I think that is, and I, and I would imagine we were probably coming to the end of our time, um, that my hope is that all of us as educators see ourselves as scientists, and we also see ourselves as artists and philosophers. 
that it's important to have education philosophy and life philosophy and interfaith philosophy, and it's important to have all of these different components to the way we think about education. And what I want is for educators to be balanced in that as they build their intuition, to be able to take something like learning theory and integrate that into something like well-being theory, and then look at the 50 students that you see every day and all of the variables that you need to differentiate to their psychosocial needs. And there is, dare I say, something alchemic about that. Or there is, on your best of days, if you see yourself as an artist in the classroom, then you're able to produce something that is that can only exist at that moment, right? And then when you need to go back to the research for instructional model, you have it and you know where to look for it. But I do think that we might agree teaching is a lot more complex than a meta-analysis. Cool. And for me, this kind of harks back to something that you said earlier in today's interview, which was for, for teachers to actually implement this stuff, they have to be living it themselves. And I, I know personally, I, I integrated mindfulness meditation into my daily routine a number of years ago. And I can feel, you know, over an extended period of time when I have been and when I haven't been doing it. And so I guess, yeah, that's, that, re- that really plays into the, the summary you were just making then. I guess we might do a few wrap-up questions if you're, if you're ready. So, okay. So I, I sent them through. Yeah, I am ready. The first question is, uh, Tom, if, that's if no one else has anything burning they need to get asked. Something that um, just from some of the things that I've seen at my school, I, I was wondering about how do you mediate between building relationships and supporting well-being of students with – so I have a, a range of cohort of kids, some who want to go to university, some who with huge um, trauma issues and like no self-regulation and apathy. And how do I like work with, I guess, setting boundaries but trying to build relationships but trying to hold the kids accountable for work and – I think some senior teachers at my school have taken an approach of I'm going to, for example, there's a student who tells the principal to shut the fuck up and that's fine because she's like, I'm going to build the relationship because then you come to school, which means that's, and then other teachers are like, well, that's completely unacceptable. You need to tell him off, but then he loses his So the AP's like, well, it's better for me to have this positive relationship with him and let him call me a but get him to school <laughs> no like no and like and I think that and I think what my school tried to do it was this like well-being school which was like if the kid feels anxious let them choose let them choose to go outside let them choose to and I to me it just seems like no boundaries like how do you so okay hi that's a big question, which is what we spend a lot of time with schools answering. So not knowing you and not knowing your students, I will say it like this. Attachment theory. Attachment theory will say that there's two elements to creating a relationship. One is something we call safe haven, and the other is something called secure base. Safe haven is what you've just described, that the child feel, that, that young person feels that they are valued as a person, that they have the freedom to be themselves, that they are not dominated into a personality that's not them. So we want children to explore and have the freedom to come back to us. And we celebrate them and we delight in them and we organize their feelings with them so they can be independent. So I find many schools we walk into now because some trauma-informed practice has recommended that kind of a thing, which is saying if a kid 
is insecure about their relational capacity and they're insecure about their identity as a teenager, then we need to create this space. But we also know that there's a second part of this. It's called secure base. Secure base is saying that when kids push the limit, we have to set the limit and set it in healthy ways. And of course, teenagers do not want to have the limit set, but neither does a a two-year-old, right? And so we work with kids who have twisted adults around their fingers since they were one or two. And when they are 13, if they don't get their way, they have a crazy meltdown. And everyone else is like, oh my gosh, you're damaged. Have the meltdown. It's scary. We don't want this. You're throwing things. You're taking the fire extinguisher. You're extinguishing the classroom. That's very scary. We don't like that. But you can see that is the result of when the secure base is not there. And at Berry Street, before we went on a very intense regeneration when I did arrive in this country, uh, we had high schoolers walk into the computer lab like this one and just light up cigarettes. And some people might have said at that point, oh gosh, they're damaged, but yikes, like you cannot smoke inside. Like you can't go to Centerlink and smoke inside. That's crazy. So I would say you absolutely need to have both. And uh, that would be my argument for your school. I'm saying it's really difficult for a school to set expectations and keep it consistent. And that's what it takes massive engineering to, you know, inner working with leadership and across the school to do that. I'll use phones as a perfect example of, you know, like I used to said before, like, where's the phone? What happens when I see a phone? Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if you know that you have 10 teachers in your school that would do 10 different things with the phone, which my guess is you would based on your question then that's a problem. And so I would actually, my first, my recommendation to you is with your, with your great team, let's say, your content level. If you're serious about this, you will go and have a meeting and you will say, you'll make a list and you'll say, what are all the inconsistencies from a student point of view? What would be all the reasons why a student would see this system as unfair we have to work together and make sure that we are handling this. So it's uniform infractions, it's phones, it's all the little stuff. But we learned in New York and it's Berry Street that when students understand that we care about your uniform and we really care about your technology usage, then the big stuff doesn't happen because we're, we're honing people's focus on the micro because it's that, that's what our kids did not have. They did not have adults around them earlier in their life to really focus on those little micro moments that they needed to have in that limit setting. Great question. Okay, Tom. Yes, hi. If you could go back in time and visit your first year teacher self. Yes, I do a lot in my dreams. <laughs> what, what advice would you give that first year teacher? Stop yelling at the children. I was a yeller. I couldn't stop it. And I didn't know how to not yell because I had a terrible theory that my students in the Bronx came from very angry homes. And so my strategy was to yell more consciously. So I would yell things like, my voice is raising right now because I care about you too much. Now get back on task. Like, you know, and that, that was like the good yelling I did. My, my, my advice to my younger teacher self is real power is when you whisper your directions. That's great. I think I probably interpreted that wrong in my first set of rounds when I was actually like, I remember I heard someone say something similar and I was talking quite quietly to make the students listen really hard. And one of the bits of feedback from my mentor was like, the students can't hear you, Ollie. Fair enough. Um, (laughs) Fair enough, So, there's definitely a balance to be struck there. Um, Could you finish this sentence? 
Oh, yeah, I remember Mr. Brunzel. He's the teacher who- Who always listened to me and was fair. When I was the dean of students, I had to body block all of the drama from the principal. And so I did that by being the consistency super police outside my office. But when it was, when every student, every Brody in the school knew that when they were in my office and the door was shut, they had a shot. And I was constantly teaching advocacy. Like, I'm going to listen to you, dude, but you've got, but I'm going to listen to you fair and square. Let's do this. Let's work on fairness right now. Where, Tom, where do you get your educational fix? Like, what do you, what do you follow? Who do you follow on Twitter? What uh, mailing list do you sign up to? How do you stay on top of things? Uh, Yeah. My answer is right now, as I'm in the final chapter of my PhD, that, yeah, like the PhD journey is not about the endpoint, it's about the process. So when you're doing a PhD, basically it's every database that you have desperately are trying to find that citation to match that theme. So I spend a lot of time with uh, peer-reviewed literature right now, but my hope is a year from, or less than a year from now, I'll have a lot more time to explore some of the things you said. And finally, do you have any last calls to action? Is there anything you'd like the people here today or listeners to go away and do? Yes, I do. Uh, from our work at the Barry Street Education Model, we do, I want you to think the next time that you see a behavior that's confusing, a behavior that's totally annoying or scary, or a behavior you just do not want to see, I want you to ask yourself or ask your colleagues, what unmet need is this kid trying to meet right now? Because these are kids who do not know how to handle the stress of learning or the stress of being themselves. So all of us are trying to meet our own needs. And when we don't know how to meet our own needs, we regress to an early stage of our development. I mean, think about how you feel when you're on an airplane and you don't have enough room. You like become a baby. You're like, oh, I don't want to be here right now. And you crouch down and you moan and you whine and, you know, you try to take care of your needs in healthy ways. But uh, I, I think that the, from our behavior analysis head, when we're asked to watch a, a, a kid like you just, uh, you know, kids like you just talked about, Kaya, um, that uh, we're trying to help understand what need is that your kid trying to meet and how can we help this kid meet their needs in healthy ways. Tom Brunzel, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Tom Brunzel. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned in the episode at www.ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, I'd love for you to write a review on iTunes. These reviews play a massive role in helping people to find the podcast when they search terms such as education on iTunes. So big thanks to Toastmaster Cat, Now Is It, and Lee JJ for their recent reviews of the podcast. If you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on today's show, I'd love to get a tweet from you. You can get me with the handle at Ollie underscore Lovell. It's always a pleasure to hear from ERRR listeners. Thanks once again to the Australian College of Educators for their support in bringing this episode of the ERRR podcast together. And finally, thanks to you for listening today. Hope you have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning. Keep learning.